Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to uh, do our final two questions, which are uh, what happens after we die and what is the meaning of history. So, you know, most people, I think, get their view of the afterlife from Hollywood. They uh, watch a ghost. What was that? uh, Patrick Swayze movie, I think it was. Heaven Can Wait, The Sixth Sense, um, Gladiator. So you see all these different movies. And they all have views of the afterlife. And there was a movie called Flatliners a while back with that. They were killing people and then right bringing them back after they've been dead for a minute. And then, what did you see? So what happens after you die is a, a, a big question. Now, I think by now... You ought to know what the pantheist would believe. Um, you know, they believe that we're reincarnated and our status in the next life is going to be based on our karma that we accumulated in this life. So you'll either come back as a cow or you might come back as something, you know, a, a prince or a king. Right? Um, but you got to remember we live in a postmodern world, which means that we pick and choose. We kind of have a cafeteria-style uh, worldview, and um, I was actually listening to Greg Kokel on the way to work, and he was actually talking about this. Um, he knows Christians who say they believe in reincarnation, and he says it's like having a puzzle, and you've got all these pieces, but the puzzle only works if you have the right pieces. They all go together. You can't take some pieces from another puzzle and mix into this puzzle and expect to come up with, you know, the worldview has to hang together, okay? And so, the pantheist answers that we've looked at for all the other questions have been really bad answers. So the question, you know, and those are things that we can check for, you know, with facts, with experience, with practice, you know, none of their answers have held up to any scrutiny. But what happens after you die is kind of one of those things that you kind of take on more more faith than any of the others, right? And so, you know, why would you take the pantheist answer for this when all of their other answers have made no sense? You understand that? And then the, the uh, second worldview, uh, atheism or naturalism, basically teaches annihilationism, which means that we just cease to exist after we die. Now, a couple of the problems with this is um, it destroys all hope for the future. It makes death something dreadful. Um, and it goes very much against the nature of man, which you know, is eternal and um, wants there to be more to, more to life than what we have here on Earth. I was listening to the Michael Savage show one night driving around doing errands and the topic was what happens after we die. Those people were calling in. They had they were all over the map with their ideas, but several of them said it just really bothered them that all that they worked for here on earth had no meaning. But just because that's awful, that's not a reason not to believe something. Okay, that's not a good argument because it's dreadful. It's just like saying, well, hell is dreadful. I don't believe in hell because it's dreadful. Um, 
But we just basically need to recognize that the annihilationism is based on a belief that everything is material. There's no supernatural. Okay. And so um, that's the only reason that they have to disbelieve in uh, a supernatural existence, a spiritual existence, because they deny the spiritual. And so their assump- that's their assumption. And we've already seen that that assumption has problems because morality is not physical, but, but they believe in, you know, mor- morality, even though they're being inconsistent when they do. <clears throat> and then the third view is theism. And we all know what that is, but basically um, man will be re- resurrected and face judgment because he's responsible to God. Those that believe in Jesus will spend eternity with God, and those that don't will spend eternity in hell. Now, there's a view among certain Bible scholars or Christians that's called annihilationism. That's not the same thing as this annihilation. What, what they try to say is that there will be judgment, there will be hell, they'll be punished, but it'll be temporary, and then you'll cease to exist. And so sometimes you might hear the term annihilationism in maybe in Christian circles, and that's different than this one. Where did they get that? Well, I think it's just because they think that, that just that's too much badness. <laughs> they just can't, you know, reconcile that somebody could suffer for eternity. They don't think that God is, is that evil. Right. right. Oh, you mean after they've suffered, then what? Then they just, after they've been in hell for a while and suffered enough, then... They'll just cease to exist. Well, that, that sounds pretty bad, I did. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe ceasing to exist is not as bad as suffering for for eternity. Okay. So, <clears throat> so how do we know, you know, which is the right view, and what are our sources of of, of knowledge when we're talking about life after death? Where do where do most people get their um, their, their ideas. Believe it or not, I think most people get it from Hollywood. I remember years ago I was at an Alpha meeting. That's kind of an evangelistic Bible study with Nicky Gumbel videos. And, and, uh, after watching the video, the leader said, do you think it's prideful to know that you say something for someone to say they know they're going to heaven? And this lady piped up and said, well, I know I'm going to heaven. I never murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. And another lady, who was a new Christian, I think, uh, said, well, I don't think that's what the Bible says is the way to get to heaven. And she goes, well, last Tuesday night we were watching Crossing Over and they were doing a seance and they got hold of Grandma and they asked Grandma where she was and Grandma said she was in heaven and we asked how we get there and she said, just be good. <laughs> So this lady is holding up the crossing over TV show up against the Bible as her authority for where she's how to get to heaven. She was at a conference, is that right? She was just at a, at a, a, yeah. a, a Bible. I mean, that's, that's not just the, that's not just a random person on the street. That's someone at a conference. Well, it was just a home Bible. It wasn't a conference. It was a home Bible study. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And so, you know, she was not a Christian, obviously, and yeah. she, this was an evangelistic home Bible study and. So, 
it was pretty interesting. Another idea, um, another place people get ideas about where what happens after you die is from hypnosis or past lives therapy. Because um, people under hypnosis sometimes will reveal past lives that they've lived. Okay. But there's something wrong with hypnosis. There's a thing called cueing where when the person under hypnosis imagines things or sees things that seem real but were really just suggestions from just before the session or you know maybe a long time before the session or maybe it was fantasies that they had and so it's so unreliable but that you can't use hypnosis testimony in court because it's just all over the place and so that's not a, a very reliable source um what do you do about the testimonies of people who died, were resuscitated, and came back, and then they report that they saw a bright light? Do you think that was heaven? Or what is Satan called? Angel of light. An angel of light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Satan probably doesn't know if they're going to get resuscitated, so he's not going to appear in his his you know normal red suit with pitchfork and horns, right? He's gonna. He could be faking. A, you know, he could just be standing at the end of that hallway with his own shining self. But nobody knows. Okay. And so, what is this bright light? It doesn't mean that it's heaven. Has anybody read 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper? This is a book that came out a couple years ago. This guy was in a car wreck, pronounced dead, left on the side of the road for 90 minutes. And then some pastor came up from the line of cars, saw the body there, and prayed for him, and he came back to life. And so he wrote this book about all you know. When while he was dead, he went to heaven and he saw all these family members and friends that were Christians that had died, and they were there. He talked about the pearly gates and the streets of gold that he saw. And so he traveled the the country giving talks about his experience. And uh, I don't know what to believe about that. It's possible that that he really went to heaven. It's also possible that he just imagined it all. Right. He what, also had been cued by his Bible training. That's the right. The pearly gates, the streets of gold. That, that, right. that, those are cues. The pearly gates and the streets of gold, the fact that he saw those makes me doubt his story the most. Because what is the language in Revelation is symbolic. There's the word. It's A lot of it's symbolic and it's descriptive. You know, it's... Are they really made out of pearl? Or is that just a way of saying that they're really fancy? Right? And so, you know, that's experience. We've already talked about how experience is a subjective source of truth. And I think about the rich man and Lazarus story. You know, Lazarus and the rich man go to... to Hades or Abraham's bosom and the rich man says send Lazarus back 
so that my brothers will believe and, and you know, I don't want them to end up here. Mm-hmm. And what was the, what did the, was it Abraham? What did the, somebody spoke, I don't remember what Abraham. he said. Abraham. Was it Abraham? Yeah. 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 What, was, what was the answer? Well, the ones on this side can't go to the other side. Neither, the reverse is true. That's true. But what, why, what was the reason given for not sending Lazarus back? They have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. They won't believe that. They won't believe if one goes back from the dead. Right. And that's true because they killed Lazarus. Yes. Yes, and that and that was they killed him. They didn't believe. And then just maybe just to prove his point, maybe Jesus raises Lazarus, and you know they don't believe. They try to kill. kill They tried to. Yeah, yeah, they wanted said they wanted to kill Lazarus. I also find it. Yeah. I find it interesting we don't have any testimony from Lazarus either. He doesn't. Right. He doesn't tell us what he saw. He was there for three days. That's longer than 90 minutes. Yep. <laughs> right? So. Once to die, is, well, can't say that with Lazarus, but basically, once to die is judgment. Right. Yeah, there's a couple exceptions, but you were going to ask a question. Well, no, I, I just wonder if. Um, Sometimes I think that um, we don't know everything. And I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just thinking like uh, Muslims, they have these dreams. Oh, yes. They have these dreams. Where does it say in the scripture that you can have a dream, have a revelation of, of, the, of Jesus, and then come, you know, to Christ? And it just seems like, um, like, uh, like that... Uh, most of these stories, it's not like somebody, um, you, usually, aren't they usually talking about that there is a heaven? Mm-hmm. They're not saying that uh, everybody's going to go to heaven. They're not saying that, uh, um, I, I guess I'm just saying, what, it, they give hope that they're, you know, and, and when I, I, I think when people hear these things, then they want to read more. They want to find out more and investigate more. Yes, that's that's a good point. And and um, and sometimes it's just like seeing the the movie, uh, you know, uh, the Passion of Christ and stuff like that. You know, it stimulates people to to read to read yeah. more to investigate more and stuff like that. Right. So I think that there is a little bit of value in them. Whether yes. I don't know exactly how true they are. I don't think anybody will ever know. But um, I think that they do. Offer hope and also make people wonder. You know, if I died, where would I go? Yes, well, but we do have many cases in the Old Testament where God used visions and dreams oh, yes. to yes. reveal Himself to prophets and, and His people. Yeah, we just don't have a lot of that happening in our culture. Right, we're we're too much. Uh, Scientific, that's not the right word, but. Logic. Logical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what reasons do Pantheists give to believe in reincarnation? What are the reasons? What reason do they give? dream there was a butterfly or something? I don't, I don't know what their reasons are. That's just their, that's their theology, what they put forth and. 
you know, that's why they don't eat cows, because it might be grandma. Mm. Well, aren't you you're one with the universe and all that stuff? You want to become a carrier. <laughs> yeah, you are, and, and you're just, their whole worldview is that, you know, cyclical, you know, evolution was the rope winding up and unwinding. Everything is going on forever, and it's just kind of what's happening while you're going through your journey towards ascension. I watch Stargate, old episodes of Stargate when I walk on the treadmill. They're all about evolution, but they're also all about ascension and the, the you know, reaching this higher plane of existence. So they're mixing their pantheism and their atheism and their evolution. So it's really, I thought... With theism, there's an end point. Pantheism just keeps going and going, right? Yes. Right. They, some, some of them take that uh, reincarnation thing to an extreme. I once went to help uh, an uncle of mine do some plumbing in a house, and she was... Uh, one of those Middle Eastern, the religion, recognition, reincarnation, whatever. And that lady would not clean that house lest some of the insects or bugs or whatever were some form of reincarnated someone. That house was dirty. There was some crystal table. That thing never being cleaned. I don't think so. Didn't want to even didn't even want to kill the bacteria. Right. Yeah. That's an extreme. That's the reason Stan has asked. That's the reason, so you have to clean house. <laughs> that's a good reason. There's a good reason to adopt that uh, religion. <laughs> that's good. Um. Well, I would consider as the objective source, and and you're right. Near death experiences. God, you can use those. And those may be, in fact, true. We just really don't have a way of knowing. So, um, I find them interesting. I'm just not going to base my belief on them. Um, so, we already talked about the reliability of the Bible and how it's our only objective source of truth. Um, with all of the prophecies that came true between the Old Testament and the New Testament, why would we not believe the ones about resurrection and heaven and hell? Okay. So the Bible has a good track record. And there are several verses that talk about um, what happens after we die. Acts twenty four fifteen that says all men are resurrected, some to heaven, some to judgment. Um, Philippians 3 talks about the power of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a good summary of the hope of the resurrection. Another thing that we have that we can know that there is life after death, that resurrection and judgment is, is the right answer, is because of the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ. Um, C.S. Lewis told that famous <coughs> saying where he says, you know, you have to say about Jesus that he's either liar, legend, or lord. He's not just a good man. That's not an option. And most of the people who don't believe in Jesus still try to use that as their answer, but it's not a possible answer. And so, you know, 
you might say, why are we talking about the incarnation when we're talking about resurrection? But if Jesus is God, um, who he said he was, then that really, we can believe what he said. And, um, you know, that's the big question. And once you understand and believe that, then then the resurrection, you know, is uh, is easily answered. First uh, Corinthians... Um, and if he was raised, then we can be too. First Corinthians 15 says, Now if Christ is being preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. Also, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead when in reality he did not raise him, if indeed the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. So... If Christ was raised, then we can be raised too. And how do we know the resurrection happened? Um, some people try to say, well, 2,000 years ago, that people it was easy for people to believe that kind of thing because they just believed in the supernatural. But that's not true. They were, the Jews were not expecting that. The disciples certainly weren't expecting it. They were off hiding. You know, we were reading... Uh, through Luke, or we are reading through Luke in a chapter or so back, I think 17, Jesus flat out said it. I'm going to be killed and come back from the grave in three days. And the disciples didn't understand. Then he heals a blind man who recognized that he was the son of David, you know, so. But the disciples, he told them, but they didn't, they didn't hear it. So they were totally surprised. And then, Something happened that caused them to totally be brave and willing to die. And they all, all but John died as martyrs. And you don't, you don't die for something you don't believe. You know, they knew that he was raised. They weren't just told that he was raised. The tomb was empty. Um, usually you have a, when a prophet or a martyr dies, they venerate the tomb. But he's not venerated as a prophet. He's worshipped as God. You know, the Jewish leaders never produced the body. They just bribed the Roman guards to lie about being asleep and that it was stolen. Um, the archaeologists and secular historians have proven the historical accuracy of the New Testament. Um, so, are we, so are they accurate about everything except the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead? And then they have all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then, you know, although the Jewish nation as a whole and the leaders didn't accept Jesus, there were a whole lot of Jews who, they stopped um, animal sacrifice, they changed Sabbath observance to Sunday worship, they changed their strict monotheism to Trinitarianism, um, they got rid of the, or they stopped obeying the Mosaic law. And 
you know, what else would have motivated them to abandon their religion, which was the basis for their life after death. I mean, they gave all that up. So the bottom line is, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we're wasting our time. Tim Keller was here in town a few weeks ago speaking at Park City's Presbyterian Church, and uh, I watched one of his sermons on the uh, internet while he was teaching it. And uh, he says, we all love make-believe stories with they lived happily ever after endings. And we know they're make-believe, and we know they don't really live happily ever after, but we're attracted to the stories. We like watching those movies, reading those books. They make us feel good for a short time. The gospel is a true, they lived happily ever after story. People don't want to believe that one. Any thoughts or questions about that question, what happens after we die? Okay, next question. What is the meaning of history? Well, the fancy word for this is the meta-narrative. The meta-narrative is the big picture, the overarching plot or something. You know, somebody will tell you, oh, I just love Castle, or I love Chuck, or I love 24 TV series, right? And so you go, I keep hearing everybody loves these shows, so I'm going to watch one. So I go turn on 24, episode one, season one, episode six, and I'm going, I didn't think it was that great. But then I didn't know the whole story, because I got in on episode six, I didn't... You know, I didn't know the, the meta narrative. Or I didn't I just watched one episode of Castle, but I didn't know the romance going on between the detective and the writer. Okay. So I missed you know, I'm I'm kind of missing the big picture. So that's the meta narrative idea. Does that make sense? Well our postmodern culture doesn't like meta narratives. They don't believe there is any plot, no overarching truth that explains and guides individual truths. And the question is, is there an, a plot? Okay. And another question would be, you know, why are we here on earth? Well, the pantheist says, no, there's not an overarching plot. We talked about this already a little bit, but history is just cyclical. Okay, it's just there while you're doing your thing and you're being re- reincarnated and moving up or down towards, you know, eventually you'll maybe you'll figure it out. <clears throat> but there's no overall purpose. The naturalist says, well, things just happen by chance, right? That's, that's what evolution is all about. And so there's no purpose to it. Now, there was this really good article in Harper's Magazine a few weeks ago. It's really a long quote, but I have to read this because this just kind of lays out what the naturalist thinks. So it's like five screens full, so let's get through it. The new, new atheists tend not to take up the question of God's existence, which they take for granted as settled in the negative. Instead, they seek to salvage what is lost when belief erodes 
concerning themselves with what atheists ought to believe and do in religion's stead. Botten, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, for instance, asked how the benefits of faith, a sense of community, a sense of wonder might be found in the secular, while Harris addresses what might be the most vexing problem facing atheists, how morality is possible without God. So at least, you know, we talked about morality. Can't, you know, if you're an atheist, you really can't have morality. And Harris is trying to, you know, salvage morality. Only Rosenberg, a philosopher at Duke with a predictable commitment to rigor, which I guess means he's being honest, he insists that doing away with religion means doing away with most of what comes with it, a sense of order in the universe, the hope that life has some inherent meaning, even the belief in free will. And I italicize that, but that's what we're talking about. So this, this atheist is going, about religion, life has no meaning. If it's true, as Rosenberg insists in contradiction of Harrison Botten, that we can't have the benefits of belief without belief itself, this raises another question. Setting aside matters of truth and falsehood, are we not better off believing? Broadly speaking, atheists seem to fall into two camps on this matter. There are disappointed disbelievers who would like to believe in God but find themselves unable. And then there are those who find the very idea of such a being to be an outrage. Among the latter camp, Christopher Hitchens famously compared God to Kim Jong-il uh, ruling the universe like his own North Korea. We ought to count ourselves lucky, Hitchens says, that such an entity does not exist outside the human imagination because the only appropriate response to it would be fury and rebellion. So we're back to this guy, the Harper. Would be rebellion. So he doesn't consider himself a rebel. <laughs> yes, that's right. So now the guy's uh, talking about himself here. So I happen to count myself among the disappointed disbelievers, which is why I was interested in the attempts of Harris and Botten to salvage some religious splendor for the secularists. So I was only more disappointed to find Rosenberg's insistence that such efforts were hopeless far more convincing than the efforts themselves. So he wanted to believe that you could salvage morality and hope and be an atheist, but he found Rosenberg's arguments more persuasive. During an email exchange with Rosenberg, I asked him which camp of atheists he fell into, and his response acknowledged my impulse. There is in all of us the hankering for a satisfactory narrative to make life, the universe, and everything that's the quote from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, hang together in a meaningful way. When people disbelieve in God and see no alternative, they often find themselves wishing they could believe, since now they have an itch and no way to scratch it. So what are we to do about this unscratchable itch? Rosenberg's answer in his book is basically to ignore it. The modern world offers lots of help in this effort. To begin with, there are pharmaceuticals, drugs. Rosenberg strongly encourages those depressed by the emptiness of the godless world to avail themselves of mood-altering drugs. Then there are the pleasures of acquisitive consumer culture, the making of money and the getting of things. So he was a drug dealer? <laughs> no, he's just saying. Okay. He's just saying. If it's, you find it too depressing that life has no meaning, take drugs or go shopping. Escape reality. That's right, that's right. My own provisional solution rests in the way of art, and in particular in literature. 
fiction at its best not only suggests but insists upon the possibility of some order in the world, even if we create or impose that order. Likewise, it insists that human experience has meaning and that in that meaning lies a form of solace. Rosenberg's response to all of this, I'm sure, would be more power to you. At the same time, he would urge me not to make the mistake of believing that the solace I find in art is any more real or meaningful than the solace others find from shopping or from altering the chemicals in their brains. To which I want to say, why not? But Rosenberg's own reckoning, by Rosenberg's own reckoning, nihilism, or meaninglessness, follows logically from atheism. But nihilism, in turn, leaves one unable to make normative demands of others, or for that matter, oneself even the demand that one follow logic or not believe in God. So. That's a terrible way to think. That's depressing. Yes, and then they have to escape the depression through drugs and whatever. I felt like he, could, he said that way better than I could have said it. But that really um, is, is revealing... They're still in a quandary. Oh, yeah. So, there's no narrative for the naturalist. And that is depressing. Postmodernism is uh, it's the study of one's cultures, one culture's power over another. Okay. And so, truth is relative, and the postmodern person is going to just revise history so that they can get what they want. Um, they can gain power. So you could go and revise American history and say that the founding fathers, you know, ignore the fact, take all the facts out of them about them being strong Christians and just promote Franklin and Jefferson who weren't, maybe weren't Christians at all. And so, you know, you've taken the, the importance of God to all of these men and and the gospel to all of these founding fathers out of the history books. And then you can now, if you raise a whole generation with that, you can you can get separation of church and state, and you can, you know, change the culture and gain power. And so the postmodernist view of cultural of, of history is pretty depressing. Nothing that they've tried um, works, whether it's Marxism or socialism or any of those things. The Bible's answer to the meta narrative, what the meaning of history is, is that it's creation, fall, and redemption. Um, God's in control, He has a plan, and He's carrying it out. Um, you know, man sinned, God's going to judge him for that. But He's also given him a way of, um, of redemption. <laughs> through the cross. I think the real issue is, is it his story or my story? Um, all the other worldviews, it's all about me. Okay. And so, you know, history is about me. Life is about me. For the Christian, history is God's story and I'm just a part of that. And and when bad things happen, I recognize that he's in control and using that as part of his uh, his big, bigger plan, the greater good, which we talked about last week.
So, that's the last question. And I, um, in all of our questions, we've basically contrasted you know, pantheism versus atheism versus theism. And you know, the goal of this whole class has been, our course has been, you know, look at the, like Coco was talking about in this thing tonight, look at the whole puzzle, you know, which one fits together the best, which one makes the most sense. And, uh, and especially when you get to the last question about, you know, what happens after you die, you know, if none of these other answers have made any sense, then why are you going to put your faith in, in your eternal soul, you know, in a system that has been full of logical, experiential, and practical errors? So, any questions? We have a little bit of time left, so I'll give you an option. But you, I had wanted to talk about tolerance a little bit, um, but we'd also talked about taking those questions and seeing if you could answer. Would you rather me ask you questions and you see how much you remember, or you want to learn about tolerance? Test or tolerance? <laughs> I sit beside Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Paul been taking notes. I read this book um, recently. I think I've had it checked out for six weeks, but I'm going to turn it in tonight. But I, would, I was going to, if you want, I can tell you a little bit about what, what he says in here. I would recommend reading it, even if I do that. Because I don't think anybody wants to take a test. <clears throat> Um, we've been talking a lot about culture and you know different things that are going on um, relativism and tolerance has to do with that uh, you know you, the constitution was written to tell how our government's supposed to run and what the, the government can and cannot do and a strict constitutionalist is going to read that and go okay we can't do that but you also hear people say, well, you know, the Constitution's wonderful. It's a living, breathing document. But why are they saying it's a living, breathing document? Because they want to modify it at their will. Yes. They want to change it so they can do what they want and they can gain more power. The Bible, um, the canon, is what books are supposed to be in the Bible. And the biblical scholars over the years have debated, you know, should Apocrypha be in there or not. But they didn't debate that there was a Bible. Now the debate has shifted. Now the debate is that there never was supposed to be a Bible in the first place. Okay? In the 4th century, they had these councils and they said, these are the books. And that was, the canon was imposed on Christianity 400 years later. And that there never was supposed to be a Bible in the first place. That the Christianity is just a group of people who, you know, it's a dynamic organism. Why do they say that? So they can make up their own theology, and we can say that homosexuality is okay, we can say that living together is okay, or whatever it is we want to we want to do. 
So they're trying to do away with the truth and the facts and move towards relativism. So we see this everywhere. Those are just some examples. Um, so what is tolerance? What is true tolerance? How would you define it? Nobody knows what tolerance is. Forbearance, yeah, that's a good word for it. Grace. Grace, okay. That's the idea that I'm going to respect you as a person, but I think you're totally wrong on your view of X. Or I think you're living wrong, okay? You shouldn't be living with your boyfriend. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be nice to you and respect you as a person, okay? So, um, there's some... So you respect another person in spite of different beliefs or practices. And there are lots of verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says love endures all things. Romans 12, 16 says to live in harmony with one another. Ephesians 4, 2 says with patience put up with one another in love. Colossians 3, 13, like John said, bearing with one another. Okay. So that's the traditional view of tolerance. That's the the correct definition. But we now have something called new tolerance. Um, The new tolerance teaches that every person's view and practice, all their views and practices are equally true and valid. Okay? Not just that the person is, the person is valid, but his beliefs are valid and his practices are valid. And they somehow get around, you know, get to this, it's all humans are equal and truth is all truth is equal. And it doesn't hold up to any logic. You can, you can see that that, that wouldn't be um, possible logically. But they don't even hold to their own definition. Oh, no. No, they don't. So if I, I believe that there's no life after death and you believe there is life after death, those are totally contradictory. They can't both, both be true. So. But not only must you say that they're true, you have to approve and endorse the other person's beliefs and practices. And that's what we're seeing going on in, the, uh, uh, in our culture today with the gay movement. You have to abandon... You have to abandon your beliefs in order to. But they are not supposed to tolerate you in that same way. <laughs> right. <laughs> no reading that Bible verse. Those Bible verses that. No, you me. can't read the Bible verses. No. And this is basically relativism. So we've talked about relativism over and over again. Um, it keeps popping its ugly head up. Um. Josh McDowell points out that any person who no longer believes in absolute truth will lose his or her moral compass, his or her ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, and a college professor said that he hasn't had anybody deny the Holocaust happened, but 20% of his students refused to say that Hitler was morally wrong. They, most that he can get them to say is, well, I don't really think it was nice. And so it's degraded to just their personal preference like we talked about. 
Like I like vanilla and you like chocolate or something. And so anyone who believes in universal truth and tries to promote truth is viewed as intolerant. And if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is um, in the Bible and that the Bible is true and that there is such a thing as universal truth, if you think that you know living together or homosexuality are not true and valid lifestyles and or you have the audacity to say they're sinful, then you're viewed as intolerant. And then those advocating the new tolerance say somehow that it is okay to be intolerant of those who are intolerant. So we're somehow the only people that, you know, it's okay to be intolerant of. And it's probably because we're the ones who claim that this is the truth. They won't condemn Hitler, okay, but they condemn Christians. And maybe it's because Hitler's not making any demands on their lifestyle. So McDowell goes through and gives a bunch of consequences to the new um, tolerance, and I'll just run through those. One is the repression of Christianity, which we just talked about. Um, we're going to be persecuted, and we're already seeing this. We talked about some of those things last couple weeks ago with the people baking cakes for weddings and for taking, uh, doing photography, photography for weddings. Um, the death of truth. Truth has been replaced with relativism. The disappearance of virtue. Um, if you can't say anything is wrong, how can you have virtue? That was something we talked about with uh, um, why bad things happen. The demise of justice. Justice implies that moral laws exist, but if we've done away with the moral laws, then you then you can't have justice. Loss of conviction. If everybody's view is true, then what are you going to have to be convicted? convinced or convicted of. And I I see that everywhere. Privatization of faith. If your faith includes that belief that something is immoral, then keep it to yourself. However, it seems like if your belief is immoral, it's okay to promote that. The tyranny of the individual. One person can complain about school prayer at the football games and get and affect thousands of people. The disintegration of human rights. If you can't say that the Chinese are mistreating their people, then you no longer fight to help the people... And it used to be that that was something we fought hard for and we had embargoes or whatever it was that we did you know, to try to persuade them to treat their people nicely. And now we don't seem to care. <clears throat> Dominance of feeling. Feelings replace the facts. It's just personal preference now. The 
the exaltation of uh, nature. Gone is the image of God and man's dominance over nature. Now we're just equal with the animals. And then the descent into the extremes. And he says that even the most outrageous claims or lifestyles have to be tolerated. And the culture is now behind gay marriage. And so next will be polygamy. There was some article came out recently talking about polygamy would be real helpful for, you know, if you got kids, you know, one lady can stay home while the other's working, and, you know. And after polygamy, then we have polyandry, two men, one woman, and polyamory, two or three men and two or three women. And That's going on there, probably. Probably is. So. Well, it probably helped the divorce rate a lot. You wouldn't need to get divorced, you just add another. There you go. Yeah, I've always wondered about the money angle. How do you have, have how do you have afford three wives and twenty children or whatever? So. Well, they're in the world, so whatever. Yeah. So this book. Yeah. He gives a lot of examples early on in the book where he he goes through conversations with. Um, a parent and the son, and the parents, you know, says one thing, and the son says, they're talking totally different language. You know, they even have different meanings, but it's the new tolerance. The, the greatest fear of kids these days is to be, don't you know, they don't want anybody to say, you're a bigot, you know, or you're intolerant. That's the worst insult that a, that a teenager could be um, accused of. And uh, so there's a lot of good examples of, things that have happened in the culture. And so it was a very interesting book. But it all ties into the stuff that we've been talking about. And so, you know, having a Christian worldview, if someone says, what is Christianity? Would you say, well, it's a religion? Or you would say, it's a relationship with Jesus? Or, you know, I think maybe the best answer would be, it is a worldview. It's the, it's a worldview that matches reality. You know, it's it, it covers a whole lot of different things, and that's that's hopefully what um, you've seen as we look through all of these big questions. Christianity has the most comprehensive and picture and fits the better the best fits together the best. So. Anyway. Um, next week, I'm going to do um, talk about Bible translations, how we got our, well, the 5,800 Greek manuscripts, and why they're different, and how do we deal with the differences, why is the King James different than the NIV, the ESV, all the different translations. We're going to talk about Bible translation theory, dynamic equivalence versus formal equivalence, and, you know, so how do you pick a translation, what are the pros and cons of some of the different ones, and uh, so we'll jump into that next week.